Welcome back to Navigating the Book of Navigation, the undergraduate-produced podcast series at Boston College. My name is Gage Higgins, and I'll be introducing this episode today. Our second podcast, produced by Calvin, Emily, Caitlin, and Megan, dives into the relationship between the Venetians and Ottomans as the two leading powers in the Mediterranean. Presented as frenemies, the two ambitious powers sparred on many occasions, yet the Ottoman Empire and the city-state of Venice had a surprisingly functional working relationship. The two were avid trading partners, recognizing the potential for a mutually beneficial relationship and engaged in an impressive cultural exchange. Welcome. I'm Emily. And I'm Calvin. And today we want to start off with a little introspection. All right, everyone. So if you can, if you're not driving, maybe even close your eyes, right? Take a second, breathe, and just think about your frenemy. (laughs) You know, you know who I'm talking about. Everyone has one. Maybe that work acquaintance, maybe that teammate, you know, maybe that neighbor or classmate that you just have to interact with every day. But that relationship is just touch and go. One day you want to wring their neck out and the next you want to make amends. Maybe you need them to do something for you or just want to offer an olive branch, right? I'm not the only one, am I? <laughs> no, okay. you're definitely not definitely not the only one. I was worried I'm just a terrible person. I mean, no, you're not. And I mean, I feel like I definitely had more frenemies when I was in elementary school, like a playground rivalry sort of thing. Yeah, sure. That's fair. Um, but even now, like I'm 20 and I'm still finding people that I just cannot bring myself to fully <laughs> get along with, right? I mean, even if they're going to be in my life for a while. Um, so even for me... I'm an only child, but I see this kind of dynamic play out in like siblings too, right? Yes. I mean, I have two sisters and I can definitely attest to that. Yeah. I mean, like, you know, some of my buddies have younger sisters and uh, older brothers or whatever. They just still cannot get along with to this day. So I feel like in a lot of ways, they're always, you know, at each other's throats, but ultimately they need each other. Yes, totally. And honestly, in the college setting, I think this applies too. I see a lot of frenemy situations with, you know, roommate drama and friendship drama, and I think it's pretty commonplace. But I'm also recently seeing the frenemy dynamic in my class readings, too. And it seems that one of the biggest frenemy ships in history has been between the Ottoman Empire and the Venetian Empire. Yeah, frenemy ships. I kind of like that. (laughs) Well, um, definitely. I think the Ottomans and the Venetians, you know, they were both huge maritime powers during the 15th and 16th centuries. And they kind of both laid claim to Mediterranean, you know, and always bickered over it. Kind of like that playground analogy, right? Right. Well, a lot of this tension is pretty evident from the cartography of the time and how these two powers interacted with each other and wrote about each other. It really shows how these frenemies got along. Definitely. And I mean, take, for example, Pirit Reis, an Ottoman maritime captain who was responsible for mapping the Mediterranean during the 16th century. Mm -hmm. He is credited with creating one of the first world maps truly sheds light into how influential not only he was, but the Ottomans were as well. He wrote a book, The Book of Navigation. Yeah, the Kitab al-Bahriye. Yes, exactly. It includes several maps and descriptions, looking specifically at Reis's descriptions of Venice and the Venetians in general, really emphasizes the dynamic of the relationship as a whole. Right, right. I mean, compared to other cities, Reis's description of Venice focuses much more on the history and culture of the city, whereas the majority of the descriptions of the other cities contain mainly geographic information. 
He includes descriptions of holidays and even how they appointed their government officials. In his other accounts of cities, you don't really see this too often. Right. It would make sense that Reis was more specific in his description of Venice and the Venetians because the two geopolitical powers were really intertwined. They had a very established trading relationship. In fact, they relied on each other so much for trade that even through times of war, their relationship continued as the relationship was like symbiotic per se. Mm, Good word, yeah. Right. When people hear the Ottoman and Venetian name in the same sentence, they may assume that their relationship was not a great one as it seemed like they were constantly at war with each other. Mm -hmm. But even though they did go to war a fair number of times, their full-on conflicts were usually pretty short-lived and often made up just a small part of the historical timeline. I mean, they were arguably the most important trading participants on the Mediterranean, right? So I guess even through times of conflict, they maintained their frenemy status to keep this up. And I think the best way to explain this frenemy label, right, would be to go through an example or two. So looking at times of disagreement, to put it lightly, let's use the 1570 War of the Holy League. To narrow this down even further, let's look at their trading relationship during the war. Once the War of the Holy League broke out, the Venetians trading in Constantinople were captured and had their goods confiscated. And I bet you can guess what happened next in Venice. (laughs) Right. The Ottoman Muslims who were trading in Venice were captured and had their goods confiscated as well. You know, good old playground retaliation. You steal my toys, I steal yours. But in order for Venice to survive... It was in their best interest to keep the trade uninterrupted, as they relied heavily on the Ottoman Empire for grains and soldiers. I mean, let's be fair, Ottomans also relied on Venice too, but because Venice in particular was so kind of dependent on the Ottoman trade, the Venetians employed Jewish merchants to act as their intermediaries between themselves and the Ottomans. Totally. And there were also other reports of merchants using back channels to trade, illegally and under the radar. Mm -hmm. But while this did occasionally happen, it wasn't as popular as using Jewish merchants. So it's clear that even when those in charge were bickering with each other, everyone else still relied on the other party to keep their goods flowing, right? So with that aside, let's look at how they kept the peace when they didn't go to war. That's a great idea. And I think, as we already mentioned, it was vital for the Venetians and Ottomans to maintain tentative peace, to keep their trading active. But it was also important to ensure Venice's survival. And since neither party wanted to wage full-on war over small territorial disputes, Venice in particular utilized a long-standing method of diplomacy to effectively resolve situations peacefully. I mean, they had been doing this for a long time. But as time kept progressing, their system of diplomacy only got more and more complicated. Right. I mean, you can kind of see this when Piri Reis was mapping the Mediterranean. He documented the Venetians utilizing their trademark method of bribery. They presented the Anatolian leader with gifts in the hope of receiving permission to build a castle on the shores of Anatolia. And it worked. As time went on from Piraeus' days of mapping the Mediterranean, the use of bribery continued, but it became commonly known as diplomacy. Right. I mean, they kept doing this system, but over time, it had to become more complex to continue to improve their foreign relationships. So they assembled a group known as the Baili to keep and improve relations with the Ottomans. And when the situation called for it, they fell back on their time-tested strategy of flattery and bribes, or gifts, to put it more delicately, in order to develop relations with the high-ranking Ottomans. You know, some say, if it's not broken, don't fix it. (laughs) Yeah. And clearly the gifts work, so why change a proven method? Exactly. You know, and an example of this is when the Venetians used this kind of gift or capitulations between the two warring nations. In order for the nations to agree to a ceasefire, 
Terms were made, and one of the terms called for Ottomans to release captured Venetian slaves. And did they? Yeah, well, no, <laughs> they didn't. They released a handful, probably to distract the Venetians from the rest of them that they forced into servitude. Classic. Right. Well, when Venice found out, they obviously had a vested interest in freeing the Venetian slaves, because once captured, there was a higher chance of the slaves, you know, spilling Venetian tea, right? <laughs> or converting to Islam. So because everyone likes to make easy money, the Ottomans used the slaves as leverage and ransomed their return back to the Venetians for a price. Of course, the Venetians employed these Jewish merchants that we talked about to deliver the money and bring them back to Venice. And of course, that was also for a small fee. Right. I think really the lesson that we can take from all of this is that even though the Ottomans presented the Venetians with a pretty complicated scenario that could have easily escalated, they managed to resolve it peacefully. Yeah, I mean, I think this definitely kind of exemplifies that frenemy relationship, right? Oh, totally. I mean, by the Ottomans deciding to ransom off the slaves in order to get some money out of it instead of releasing them as agreed, it created an easy opportunity for the Venetians to escalate the situation. But instead, they found a way to work around it, right? And they found the best possible resolution. Though, as we're about to see, this created some resentment of the Ottomans that built up over the decades. The sun rises over at Constantinople. The glittering city begins to teem with life. The hustle and bustle of the markets begin anew, and the imams finish their morning prayer. A few passers-by notice a faint light hovering over a mosque. More and more people stop and stare, perplexed by the spectacle before them. Some see it as a miracle, a blessing of Allah's grace. As the light continues to grow, however, their relation quickly turns sour. The light forms itself into the shape of a burning cross, a symbol of the power of the Trinity and the sanctity of Christ. The Turks become enraged. The guard is called, and they begin firing at the flaming cross with guns and arrows. Their efforts, however, are in vain. The cross burns even brighter, engulfing the golden crescent moon that sits atop the mosque. As the gold from the moon melts and drips over the square, the powerlessness and sin of the Muslims is laid bare, confronted with the true might of the Christ. This scene, you know, of this miraculous cross appearing over a mosque is included in a Venetian woodcutting and a Venetian booklet of maps depicting Constantinople. These Venetian cartographic booklets were called Isolari, or island books, and they serve as a counterpoint to Pierre Ruiz's book of navigation. These books really shed light on how much the Ottomans lived in the Venetian headspace, rent-free, to use the modern slang. Uh, right, because, you know, the Venetian Isolari genre was pretty well established. And it was always tailored towards the Venetian consumer class to kind of, you know, flip through and imagine the Mediterranean through these illustrations and anecdotes from the islands that were depicted. And navigational manuals, on the other hand, never had these detailed illustrations of the islands. So what Piri Reis did was to combine these two genres into his book of navigation. So it has both the very practical aspect of the manuals and the stylized, dramatic depictions of the islands in question. Right. So this like amalgamation of styles makes it stand out against the Isolario genre it pulled from. Because in the Venetian Isolarios, unlike Reese's more objective work, you can kind of really see this petty, right, anti-Ottoman bias. And you know, just how much these Ottomans were a constant source of Venetian anxiety. Right, yes, completely. And because during the 15th and 16th century, the Venetians gave up a lot of territory to the Ottomans. And a lot of those losses apparently hit pretty close to home. Yeah. You know, both literally and figuratively. <laughs> Right. So they really didn't depict a lot of the islands that were under Ottoman control. I guess it was just, you know, 
too much of a sore subject. So, right. you know, like when everyone is not talking about the elephant in the room. <laughs> yeah. So when they did reference the Ottomans, like in the case of the cross over the mosque, it always seemed kind of like sort of revenge fantasy. Like the island of Polycandros. Yeah, that's a good one. And in this description that accompanied Polycandros, the Venetians shared a story of a hermit that lived alone there. And when the Turks murdered him in cold blood, a giant sword descended from the heavens and killed them all. Ooh, <laughs> you know, same thing for the island of Colieros, where there was a monastery that the Turks plundered and, you know, killed all of the monks only to drown in a sudden violent storm at sea, right? So you kind of, you can see the way they talk about this. It almost still feels like Zeus is throwing thunderbolts from Mount Olympus <laughs> in the 1500s, right? Exactly. And well, what's interesting in all this is that after the Battle of Lepanto, these Isolari did finally start presenting a more complete view of the Mediterranean. So they stopped the sort of tiptoeing around Ottoman holdings, and they started regaining some Venetian pride. Right. And, you know, meanwhile, Pierre Ruiz had always worked to paint a comprehensive picture of the Mediterranean, and his maps were being used by Ottoman captains all over, right? So his works and the Venetian Isolarios were designed for totally different purposes. Right. The Venetian Isolarios and the Book of Navigation were made with different mediums, too. The Isolarios often had wood cuttings accompanying the texts like the one about the miracles in Istanbul. Right, but obviously those sea captains couldn't have just used paper books in their ships or they would have been ruined like immediately, right? Right, definitely. Right, so they used animal hides or parchment and roll them up like big scrolls. Interesting. So maybe comparing the book of navigation in the Isolario isn't like apples to apples per se. But I think it definitely still sheds light on how both these cultures approach their cartographical works. And sort of, I think comparing them really does paint a picture of the similarities and differences between the Venetians and Ottomans. Yeah, and I guess that kind of brings us back to our theme. You know, all these two frenemies, the Ottomans and the Venetians, at once trading partners, at once bitter rivals, but both big players in the early modern stage. The bittersweet tragedy is that ultimately, hand in hand, they took their bow as the historical spotlight shifted westward towards the Atlantic and away from the Mediterranean. So next time you see your frenemy, consider doing something nice for them. You never know how or when that relationship will fade away. 